0: Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges, and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic, and even using humour can be game-changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real-life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello there and welcome to another episode of Better at Work. Now, on this episode, I am joined by the inspiring Jennifer Moss. And actually, she's our first Canadian guest. Jennifer, first Canadian guest on the podcast. So excited to have you here. Now, Jennifer is an international public speaker, author and workplace expert. She is award-winning author of Unlocking Happiness at Work and a frequent writer for the Harvard Business Review. She's also a member of the United Nations Global Happiness Council. I bloody love that, Jennifer. And Jennifer contributes annually to the workplace chapter of the Global Happiness Policy Report. And plus, her new book, The Burnout Epidemic, has been one of my favourite reads of 2022. Without a doubt. Jennifer, welcome to Better at Work.
1: I'm so thrilled to be here. That was a great intro and I am ready to um, have a conversation.
0: You are ready. You're ready. And Jennifer just told me beforehand, she's going on a long weekend now, so she's in even better mood. So this is going to be a great episode.
1: It will be. (laughs) I'm already ready for the the cocktail post conversation.
0: Oh, nice. I might have a drink after this as well. Now, before we get into the conversation. Where did this all start for you, Jennifer? Why did you become so interested in happier and healthier workplaces?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because as we were having this sort of preamble conversation and you were sharing just how work is supposed to make the rest of our lives happy, you know, it was a catalyst moment in my personal life. And it really led me to realize that there was a lot of unhappiness at work and led me to the stat that it's 50% of our waking lives that we spend at work. And the fact that That there's so few people that get enjoyment from their jobs. There's so few people that are engaged across the entire global workforce. So it became sort of a passion project. And my first effort was to look at the neurosciences of happiness, you know, how neuroplasticity plays a role in building habits. And could we extrapolate that into the workplace and think, okay, if we just slowly build the psychological fitness in our organizations, how is that going to translate into better metrics? As I was going through this work, so many organizations working with them. And what I kept seeing was all of these leaders giving ice cream to people that just need water. And that was a big problem. They're just so exhausted. They're working these 60, 70 hours a week. And we're saying, well, here, take a Friday off or here's summer Fridays, but you still have to work 70 hours. You know, just the way that they were approaching the solutions were really failing these people. And that made me try to really figure out what the the crux was, what the problem was. And where do you think
0: that interest came from? Like as a kid, were you the kid in school that wanted everyone to be happy? How did that begin for you? Or do you remember I have always been
1: optimistic, but I'm more of a cautious optimist where it's not like a rational, you know, I, I am pretty critical. And I think as a journalist too, I've become even maybe a little bit more critical, but there was this moment. And, and I do talk about it in the book where my husband, who is a pro athlete, and this was in 2009, where he was a pro athlete and became acutely paralyzed. And it was a really big shock moment to our lives. And what we recognized is that, you know, there was all... All these other barriers. They said he wasn't gonna walk again. At first we didn't even know what was going to happen with you know his health in general. But then it was that you're gonna be probably looking at paralysis the rest of your life. And then you know it was well maybe it's a year he walked out of the hospital after six weeks. And a lot of that can be tracked back to, yeah, he was physically healthy, but that doesn't always spare you. It had a lot to do with sort of mindset and the fact that psychological fitness also attracted people to him to increase that support. We noticed, you know, his grouchy neighbor wasn't getting as many people attracted to supporting him. And it was interesting, this this sort of learning, it was like behavioral you know, Science at its best, just looking at what happens when you reach out to people, when you're vulnerable, when you're open to help, when you're optimistic. And I think that translated into this effort to learn, how do we like, how do we bottle that and make that, you know, what is a big part of our lives, which is work.
0: I can't believe he walked out of there after six weeks. It's just unbelievable. I love that story, though. The fact that you wanted to see what was the magic thing that made that happen in a strange way, not as serious a situation. I always think my grandfather, who lived to be into his 90s. He was always very popular. He would go into the butcher and he would smile and chat with everyone and he would get the best piece of meat because he was just so friendly. And I used to think, how can I bring that to work? There's obviously something that he was doing for all of his life that made him have a better relationship with people and seem to get better results, even if that was just a nicer piece of meat.
1: I love what you're saying, because that's exactly it. You attract people around you that are drawn to you being, you know, kind and, and generous with your vulnerability and you're empathetic. And so you draw people that appreciate that. What is so interesting when we looked inside of organizations, and what I've actually learned through this whole research through the pandemic, is that those organizations where leadership were highly empathetic were the ones that fared the best through the pandemic, the ones that sort of went back to those root beliefs of just listening and hearing people's stories and then actioning what they were hearing and being quick about it and agile and not being, you know, focused on their ego or the things that they were so, so married to. It was about, that agility of psychological fitness and those leaders, because it does have to be leaders. We can be empathetic and resilient and all that. And that's really great. But our leadership and organizations have to also, you know, invest in that kind of attitude and behavior.
0: Couldn't agree more. I can't wait to get into some of this with you because I've got a few questions related to that because I love that in the book. Now, you used to be the happiness expert to the unhappiness expert. Tell us a little bit about how did that happen? How did that change happen for you?
1: It's funny because it's just more like I'm the unhappiness expert so that we can like Instead of tackling it, you know, way downstream and pulling people out or really making people feel like positivity is toxic, which a lot of people feel like, I'm sorry, but I can't gratitude my way out of systemic discrimination and barriers to me being a woman of color, trying to juggle having kids at home as a single parent. So this is really a big factor for me where I thought, okay, I'm going to have to be a naysayer here, but it's about sharing accountability and understanding that leaders are struggling too. They're sandwiched. They have expectations being placed on them and they're maxing out their team. So we're all really just part of an ecosystem. And that was what I wanted to get across is that you can have all of these support tools and wellness practices and perks But, you know, no one's going to be able to utilize those effectively and even optimize their well-being unless they're able to get out of bed and they're able to motivate. And they're able to feed themselves healthy and engage in things that make them feel good and feel happy. I really started to tackle it as a goal to focus How do we get people so that they can utilize that investment that the company's making? And also just making people not feel guilty for feeling burned out, giving a label to it, giving them a place where they can feel like, okay, I'm not just a bad employee who doesn't love and care about my job or thinks that the company is crap. I am actually really in a serious place of mental health struggle and I need help.
0: In the book, you talk a lot about that. I I love the way that you like this sounds weird, but you almost went further north on the problem. Yeah, right. It's like, let's see the root cause a little bit more of the problem as opposed to band-aids over the problem. Big congrats because I saw, I don't know when this came out, but I only saw it yesterday that your amazing book, The Burnout Epidemic, was named one of the 10 best new management books for 2022 by thinkers Fifty. Now, Now, that is a friggin big deal. How amazing. Now, the book is an amazing playbook for all trying to work out burnout. What was the core aim in writing the book?
1: Thank you for the congratulations. I just found out yesterday, too. The reason why I feel so connected to this topic and why I wanted to really invest in this thinking is that, When we are at work and we're constantly in this state where our workload is high, I know myself too as a mother of three in this pandemic in the last couple of years, I realized just how much pressure there is on certain groups to have to be able to perform in these environments. And it became this need to always have this toxic productivity. And I recognized that this macro stress was making me feel this brain fog. And so then I was feeling less effective at my work. We have this workload, I'm juggling kids. And then now a lot of women are working 15 to 20 hours more per week, just on average in this unpaid labor. There was all these moments for me. And it really, I think, added to the the book because I wasn't just an academic or a journalist writing about a topic. I was in it. And I was feeling what every other person inside the workforce was feeling. And it made me so much more compelled to, to learn and get research that would contribute to the book like in this moment right now and capture that. And a lot of what I I learned is this sense of collective empathy for each other. We felt very isolated. We thought we were the only people going through these things. But then you start to realize every level, every person are feeling these things. And burnout has been existing for so long. I've been shouting it from the rooftops. But this somehow just exacerbated all of those issues.
0: I think we are learning a lot from it and people are talking about it more. You know, my next question actually was like, everyone has been talking about burnout. I talk to a lot of people, people I've worked with at, you know, various companies. Everyone is talking about burnout. But I think, you know, to get our listeners, I suppose, up to speed on burnout a little bit more. I saw in the book, and you've mentioned this a few times, that the World Health Organization, I think it was in 2019, they identified burnout as a workplace phenomenon. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I've heard you talk about it before.
1: This was a big deal for us in that space where we wanted to really push accountability and move it around the institution. And when the World Health Organization identified burnout as this institutional stress left unmanaged, it was important because the definition before was really nebulous and people just felt like, what does that mean? Does it mean I'm saying yes to too many things? The burden is on the individual to solve, you know? And here now we're saying, okay, actually it's not, it's institutional stress. They provided six root causes. Sort of said, okay, now you realize, okay, I'm sort of off the hook for some of those things because I don't have control over that. And then it shows up in these three major signs, which is high levels of exhaustion. I think a lot of us felt pretty exhausted this year, this depletion feeling. And then it shows up in feeling disengagement, and not the way that we measure it in corporate. It's you know, it's not like we're not being productive or not showing up. It's it's more like we feel emotionally distanced from our job. Like we wonder if we're really good at what we do anymore. We don't feel like we're contributing. We don't add value. And then it's also high levels of cynicism. So all these things sort of, if we feel them based on the Maslach burnout inventory, which the WHO based a lot of their definition on Maslach and, and Lighter, foremost experts in burnout, looking at how frequently do we feel those three signs every week? If it's two or more times a week, we should question it. And if it's kind of consistent over time, because you've probably been in a scenario where you've had a compressed workload, you have a deadline and it's really intense and you're feeling kind of burned out for a period of time, but then you know, there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. If you stop seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, that's really when you should say, okay, I am at risk and this means hitting the wall. And that could mean, you know, 18 months to two years of recovery.
0: Definitely. I've seen people, it's taken them two, three years. It it kills their confidence. They're dreading going back into the workplace. And I think people underestimate that when they're in it. They can go, oh, well, I'll just get through this. They underestimate the drain and impact that's having. And I have seen people taking them two or three years and a lot of therapy to get over it. Now, you said that to solve burnout, organizations need to look beyond traditional wellness perks. Can you tell us a little bit more about the whole thing I just mentioned there, just say no, and why you believe people need, uh, companies need to move beyond the, the usual wellness perks that they've been peddling for a while?
1: It's really sort of the crux of the book, I think. And I know that there's good intentions. And I write sort of good intentions gone wrong in the book is this idea that I know there's a desire to help. And I know things that come along, they feel really on trend. Here's a meditation app that's going to be so great for you. And someone is saying, well, I have HR asking me to engage in this app and yet I don't even have time to go to the bathroom or eat a granola bar. So a lot of this too is is very legacy driven. Like I keep talking about how employees can't be what they can't see. It's about modeling self-care and if you have psychological fitness it needs to be at all levels. And so that is where that empathy comes in. You know, we have, and I write about this in the book, this idea of, you know, the holiday party and how everyone thinks that's really great to have this holiday party. And yet, you know, most people actually dread it. A lot of people that are feeling any sort of insecurity or they're introverted, they don't want to be in this environment. And yet this is what we just do. We sort of expect that people will love it. And we continue to create these systems in in which only a small percentage of those high performing people are benefiting. And so that is about changing that. It's also societal. I mean, we need to have more equitable maternity and paternity leaves and not even call them maternity and paternity leaves. They should be care leaves and primary caregivers get just as much time. We need to change the language. It's very exclusive. The language of people being off then long-term impact will make it so that women aren't exiting the workforce at astronomical levels because it's not sustainable to take care of their kids. I give so many different examples in the book but these mindsets that we have to change the way that we're thinking about perks is not actually helping. And a lot of people are gonna still be in that same modality. You see so many people that I've spoken with in leadership and HR just say, we spend a you know millions of dollars in giving this support around, you know, wellness and mental health, but no one's using it. And if we could just reallocate those funds for things like, you know, upstream interventions like tele, telehealth is actually a great shift from the pandemic where people are using more teletherapy, where we have more mental health first aid and everyone training on mental health first aid, having more supports and EAPs for you to have anonymous support. That's really where we need to go. And I do think we're seeing that more, but we still have such a long way to go.
0: My experience as well of it, Jennifer, is I sometimes see they see a problem, right? They say, oh, well, we've got burnout. And it's like someone goes, we need a quick fix. Often I see no thinking done. Well, what's the root cause of the burnout here? Or what's the root cause of people feeling exhausted here? Instead, it's like, no, no, get it in, get it in, get it in, just get something in. And then we can advertise that. And then when people don't sign up to it, people go, what happened? I mean, our employees, they're just not engaged. They're not smart to know that we built this for them. And I sit there and I go, but you didn't ask if that was what they actually wanted. So I 100% agree with what you say. And I have seen that. And I hate that people just want the quick fix. It doesn't help people.
1: The reason why they want a silver bullet solution is because they don't want to actually Consider that they don't want that employee to stop working and they don't want them to stop working to meet the demands. So it's a very difficult contradiction. It's this. I still need to meet demands. I need to hit growth at these levels. And I keep saying, you know, why are we continuing to say this is not business as usual? We have to think more around, you know, managing how much time we're meeting, having right to disconnect guidelines. We need to manage the things that are preventing people from accessing this, understanding that there's just not the capacity for the workforce and the systems around them to actually be able to make something go well and smoothly and not stress people out and make people burned out. We need to start thinking like that. Like it can't be growth at all costs. It can't be everything is the same as it was. We are in a whole new metaverse right now.
0: You get these some leaders who they think they're being, I suppose, they're kind of keeping the pressure on and they they just kind of almost blank over and people say, well, look, we just don't have the capacity to do that. They'll say things like. It just has to be done. We've got to make it happen, guys. Everyone's messaging each other going, this guy hasn't got a clue. I mean, we are just going to lose so many people and they don't want to hear it. But they roll out these lists of same old statements. And honestly, I've sat in the meetings and I go, Jesus, Lord. I mean, I am someone who personally does like to achieve good results and everything. I'm not going to do it at all costs. And you have to listen to people. Like if they're telling you our contact centres cannot deal with the volume of calls now because of the pandemic, we've got to do something about it. You can't just say they need to take less breaks and we just got to get it done. I mean, come on. Let's move on because the book, I really want to get into some of the core of the book and it's just so great. Now, you share some fantastic research within the book, which states that burnout is often triggered by the following. And I really want to mention these because I think for our listeners to hear this workload, number one, perceived lack of control, lack of reward or recognition, poor relationships, which actually surprised me, lack of fairness and values mismatch. Now, I cannot underestimate how much these these resonated with me. And the values mismatch one was a big one in there because that in the past has impacted my own energy. But would you mind telling us a little bit more on the research here on the triggers of burnout?
1: It's really interesting. I mean, and I highly recommend anyone that's listening to go and look up any work by Dr. Christina Maslock, Dr. Michael Leiter, and Dr. Susan Jackson. And they've been working on this for 40 years. It's this concept of again, these upstream issues. And a lot of it is based on just like corporate hygiene. So Dr. Herzberg looked at hygiene around the happiness piece already before going into burnout. But this idea of just having table stakes stuff in our organizations is what we need to be able to get to the point of motivation. Without that, then we can't motivate. So it's like, I just need to be paid well. I need to make sure I go to work and that there's equal pay for equal work, which we don't see yet globally. I want to make sure that I don't get bullied when I go to work, that I feel included. I want to you know, make sure that these basic things are, are happening across the board. And when you actually look at the root causes, a lot of that has to do with just poor hygiene. Then the motivation piece is when we have all the perks that attach to that. So when you look at these six root causes, you can see, okay... Workload, for example, that's just working too long, working too much, not being able to get breaks. Not only anything after 50 hours is useless. Anyone that's working 60 hours per week is at more increased risk of heart disease, early death, and it doesn't mean anything. So workload is a big contributor. Overwork is a big one. When we look at lack of control, the micromanaging piece is a big one.
0: That one resonated with me massively because and I actually made a note of it here. I saw a lot of my own burnout in the past linked to lack of control. So when I read that in your book, because I've worked for micromanagers, it's very tough. That kills you.
1: And it's really increased in the last couple of years because so many managers have been comfortable with management by walking around. And then all of a sudden, they're trying to lead remotely. There's this lack of trust, which has led to so much more micromanagement. People also, too, right now, this lack of control piece in just saying, sorry, you have to go back to work five days a week in the office when... Why add that commute? Why not have flexibility? What's the purpose of it? And they're going back into the office just to do the same things that they would be doing at home. So again, like that expectation to just follow arbitrary rules is a really a big factor in why people feel that lack of control. The whole idea of compensation, I mean, we should just need to pay people properly, yes, but we see a lot of like wage gaps, massive wage gaps across the global workforce, especially in certain sectors. It's a real problem until that's actually solved, we can't solve for burnout. And then it's also not feeling recognized. A lot of people are being promoted when they shouldn't be. You see the same people that look the same all at the higher echelons, and then you don't have anyone really represented. So there's a lack of diversity. So that, you know, obviously is playing a big role in our burnout. And then when you look at the lack of community piece, so the the poor relationships huge impact on burnout when it's feeling lonely at work. And we felt this loneliness already pre-pandemic. It was a real issue. But then now within this environment, there's just so much isolation. People are feeling really disconnected. And then you're seeing a lot of, especially our young professionals, they're describing that especially these verbatim that we got from the research where they're saying I like I've started this job in a pandemic I've never met my boss never met my coworkers I'm totally isolated yeah. now I can't say no to work cuz I've no agency I've no tenure I've not proven who I am like my career is atrophying so you hear a lot of that and that's why that group is actually the most burned out because of this this issue with lack of community The final one is that values mismatch and, you know, not feeling like you're a fit or being oversold on a job saying like, this is a great job. Someone just wants to get the talent. So they're embellishing the concept of the awesomeness of the company and you get in there and it's the total opposite of what you expected. You can see how what we just thought as burnout is workload is like all these other micro stressors that are all coming at us. And some of us are feeling all six of these root causes right now. So no wonder we're
0: strained. And I think the one on poor relationships, which I had down here, was really interesting to me as well. I was surprised to see poor relationships on here. Now, I recently had Bruce Daisley on the podcast and Bruce, um, ex-CEO of Twitter, and he's written a lot about workplace happiness as well. And he actually said one of the most important things to make people engage at work is to have a friend at work. In the book, you talk about poor relationships can impact us and cause burnout. Can you just give us a little bit on that? Because I think people will also be surprised that poor relationships at work can cause burnout, because I think like me, they would have thought, how is that linked to burnout?
1: It's incredible when you look at the data and Gallup has probably done the best research around this because in their Q12, they started asking, do you have a best friend at work? And then they started to correlate the impact of having a best friend at work. And then they tested actually, do you have a close friend at work and found that there was a difference in having this like really, really close friend. And so a lot of what I've been sharing in the happiness piece too, is doing the research around what are the benefits to having a best friend at work. and it's extraordinary. I mean, burnout's reduced by 41%. You have 27% increased likelihood of getting a promotion. You're more likely to have psychological safety, so you speak up more. But conversely, not having... A best friend at work, a, a person that you have an allyship, you're more likely to feel lonely. You're 50% more likely to leave to quit. People keep you there, and so there's all of these impacts and impacts on revenue with higher productive relationships because you have someone that you can go to when you need support. You feel like you have someone kind of that has your back. You have, you know, some level of mentorship and peer support. And when you actually look at The way to buffer burnout is to have peer support, but also the only way that you get out of a burnout event is through peer support. Friendships make a really important part of our dynamic of work. And yet now we've swung the pendulum really far in one direction. We're replacing our relationships with technology. We're not augmenting them. People are feeling highly disconnected. They want the flexibility, but they don't also recognize that being with someone in person, there's an element of of benefit to that. So we have to figure out in this hybrid strategy, a Goldilocks zone where people come back together together. They are interacting and we're using the time in office to actually bond. We're doing it really badly right now. So hybrid needs to be more structured where we're doing different things. Maybe it's just work sprints or hanging out or, you know, beers with peers that someone just said that they had the other day and they loved it because they actually saw the whites of someone's eyes and had a beer with them. And then use the flexible time to, and when you're home, to do stuff that you can do by yourself.
0: I agree with you on that. And I've had a lot of similar to what you said, you know, young people coming into the workplace, they go in, as as you said, they've never even met their boss. For a lot of young people, they might just finish university. They've had that lovely community in university of friends. And then they want to have something similar in work. I've had a lot of graduates come to me and go, I am so depressed. I haven't been in the office. I've moved to Sydney to take this job and I have no friends. I don't know anyone here. If they had been in the workplace, that would not have happened. So honestly, for anyone listening, you really have to look at Jennifer's book and you'll see you will be shocked at some of the root causes of burnout. Another question, you kind of touched on this a little bit. Do you believe some people are more likely to be impacted by burnout than others?
1: perfectionist is one. And a lot of that just has to do with the fact that we don't let ourselves off the hook really for mistakes and we're high performers. So that adds this impact on hitting goals and reaching goals. And when we don't, we feel like, oh, we're just totally not effective. It's sort of an all or nothing mindset. We saw a lot of that actually in the pandemic because a lot of people that just were naturally high performers and not necessarily perfectionists sort of move from having these sort of perfectionist strivings, which I talked about in the book, this they their goal oriented and, and they have a desire to accomplish things. But if they they don't meet that goal or whatever, it's not like their whole persona is gone, like their identity is missing. Whereas we moved from that, that because it was so much more consistently difficult to hit those goals because we were working 30% more. To hit the same goals, then we're adding more workload, we're juggling more stuff, and we're dealing with a global pandemic, which none of us have just pat ourselves on the back for and said, Hey, good job, you made it through a global pandemic today. A lot of that sort of has led to this shift of more people feeling the impact of the negative parts of perfectionism. And then introverted folks, anyone that is sort of dealing with high trait neuroticism or or feeling like they are not part of a larger group, we saw at first. Introverts waving their hands saying, like, oh, I love this is my happy place. I'm get to be in my spot alone. And we saw this interesting switch because we saw those who were high in extroversion really just struggling because they wanted to be around people. What we found in the research, is that a lot of the introverts that we were researching were saying, you know what? I didn't realize how much work just got me out of my shell for a bit, or I could go see that one person that I was really bonded with. Now I'm not having any way to, to meet people or connect with people. And it's was, it's really atrophying. So it's interesting that you see like certain, you know, big five personality traits for sure being impacted. By, you know, the risk, but we're also seeing those people that have care concerns. They're the ones that are in healthcare. The stakeholder is so important to them. It's like we're dealing with life or death. It's very difficult to shut off for someone where they see that person in need. They're not removed from it. That's difficult. Same with teachers, they have students that they're seeing impacted. Anyone working in nonprofit is more at risk because they see impact of what has happened, especially in COVID playing out in all parts of nonprofit world. Every sector of our communities are being impacted. So then they feel it's not about me, it's about them. And that passion can very dangerously become obsessive. And then we get
0: really sick. Thank you for sharing that. That was really, really excellent. Now, I suppose the thing a lot of people on here are going to want to know is how can we prevent burnout? Some of the things you share in the book, I think are so practical, but can you share a few of the things that you think can prevent burnout?
1: For managers and leaders, their expectation in how to solve this is very different than what we can do to mitigate our own burnout. And the things that we need to be doing is, is taking pauses and, and realizing that we're not in an emergency anymore. And I, I say this by definition, emergencies are unexpected. We're over two years in. We have this sense of urgency, this permanent urgency all the time. We're not stopping and getting you know better man- expectation management. We're not asking people, like if you say you need something, we immediately make assumptions that it's right now instead of taking taking a moment to ask, you know, when do you need this by? And, you know, we are asking our people to work at all hours of the day. We need to model that and stop that. but also us as individuals have to be able to get that space where we disconnect, where we are focused on our own mental health and well-being. And sometimes we create the this imaginary world where we think we need to be on, but that hasn't been mentioned or desired. It is an invisible pressure, but we should definitely take a moment to say, are we adding to that pressure? Do we feel like if we, take the night off if it's actually going to lead us to being fired? Or are we just in this mode of COVID where everything has to be immediate? We need to get better at bifurcating between work and life. I keep stressing this, this concept of the fake commute, getting up in the morning, going for a walk, taking 10 minutes to do something like frivolous, I say, but it's not, you know, even just striving to get a coffee if you work from home, go run and get a coffee and come back, like make it something special that you're looking forward to. And then you start work with this flood of really healthy hormones and energy. And then at the end of the night, reverse that commute by going for a walk and then making sure that you shut your laptop down and that you make it that it's at the exact same time every day so that your brain starts to prime itself for this being the end of my workday. It sounds sort of like childish or, or oversimplified, but it is actually telling your brain that you're in a different mode and it starts to flood your body with resting hormones. And if you do actually make it so that it ends at that specific time every day leading up to it, your body prepares itself. So you're getting even more rest and refueling and making sure that you just keep routine. The people that fared the most inside the pandemic of the big five personality traits were the ones that had high levels of conscientiousness. So people that really had strong, strong routines had something to lean on when there was all this uncertainty.
0: Love that. And and I know in the book, you also give some really great tips for how managers or leaders can help their teams with burnout. And they were just so practical. It was like, don't make big speeches, be real, you know, stuff like that, which I just loved.
1: Managers have this real capacity to make these changes in these very micro ways that don't require an overhaul because they think, oh, well, my organization, and we do tend, especially even I am terrifying everyone, saying there's six root causes, they're massive, that's impossible to, you know, to actually fix. We do have a lot of power as direct managers to make change. One of them is, I say, have a non-work related check-in every week. Ask people how they're doing and they'll lie and say they're fine when they're not. Then you ask them, you know, okay, name a high and a low for the week. So simple, but you're listening to the language of motivation and you're listening to the language of stress you create a shared goal, which is predictive and a buffer of burnout. This is what can we do for each other to make next week easier. And it's about consistency and frequency, half an hour, every single week, don't break the rule. And then over time, we'll see that people will become more vulnerable. And you as a manager need to be more vulnerable too create guidelines around when people can be off work. I mean, so simple. Do an analysis of how much you're stealing people's time. Do a time theft analysis. How often do your meetings go long? Put a price tag on that. Put a currency on your meetings. Think about, okay, typical, it's our group that has five people. On average, their salaries combined are this, you know, on average. Think every single time you go over how much that's costing you, how often when you could have a 20 minute meeting and it's an hour, how much is that costing you? How often could you not have a meeting and let those people be working and being productive? And how much is that saving you? These are the things you wanna do as a leader to just like get a your mind around how much inefficiencies there are because a four day work week isn't radical. All the analysis that we've done has found it's just about etiquette reducing inefficiencies, making sure that people are working on the things that they do best. And you can do that in 30, a 32-hour work week. You do not need 60 hours. We need to get better at just saying, I don't need to be at this meeting or this person saying, you don't need to be at this meeting. And we say, thank you for giving me my time back. Prove to the rest of the organization that what you're doing is helping. Start at the beginning and just ask. For people to give their level of well-being, level of job satisfaction, like how happy do you feel like about your job right now? And burnout, you know, ask them, are they feeling these three signs of burnout and how frequently they're feeling? Do an anonymous measure if you want through any sort of tool and then do one of these tiny interventions, the non-work related check-in or the meeting guidelines or whatever that thing is. And then in a month or a quarter, ask how people are feeling those same three questions if they improve, then keep doing what you're doing. If they are you know, not improving, then try something else. It's so simple. And then you can start to create a place for managers and leaders above you to say, Hey, I'm doing this awesome thing. And it's really increasing job satisfaction. You should try it too.
0: You know, it's interesting how excited do people get when they're told, "Oh, a meeting's been canceled." It's often the most excited you see people of a day. They're like, "Oh, yes!" So, it's a real uh, dopamine hit for people when you do that. <laughs>
1: it is. I mean, and people are so bored. They're so bored they're tuning out. Like even the meetings you're having, we've lost all novelty to them, and so people are just gone. They're so unproductive. And it was bad before, and it's just gotten so
0: much worse. A few other quick questions before I leave you. I love your message around positive gossip. How does it help? positive gossip. We've always been told gossip is bad in the office. You say positive gossip is good. Tell us more.
1: I love this thinking of how do we create a network effect? And a lot of this research, and I did talk about it in the book, the one that really inspired me at the beginning was this social contagion effect research. Christakis and Fowler sort of mapped happiness over, you know, in Massachusetts, the Framingham Heart Study found that heart health is contagious. And they found it's a social contagion. Because more people get checked out, more people are active in this environment. So it spurs this healthiness. So they thought, okay, what are other social contagions? And they mapped on and looked, you know, loneliness is contagious, depression, suicide, smoking, divorce is contagious, but happiness also Is very contagious. Like there's a clustering that happens. And so when we look inside of these organizations, like how do we create this social contagion of well being in our organizations? You know, how do we make that spark? Well, you have to start like any contagion. It starts with like, you know, you're sort of that first person that, that kind of starts the spread. You start to go behind someone's back and say, Oh, you know, Jane was so amazing. This presentation that she did was so good. I loved it. I've taken this with me into my group and been like applying some of her strategies and it's awesome. Maybe it never gets back to Jane. Eventually you hope that it does because it spreads. You know, people start to say, Hey, I'm going to try that too. That's really awesome. Think about what that creates. You know, people start to think, okay, this is What we want to be communicating about more with each other is less rumination, more about the awesome things that are going on inside of our organization. And then you see this sort of clustering of people that want to be around each other because they're positive and optimistic. And then that becomes the norm instead of the outlier. And that's what we want to kind of try to create is this kindness and gratitude and empathy and optimism.
0: It does create a really great work environment. Now, I have to let you go because I could talk to you all day, but I do want to ask you two final questions. We are better at work. It's all about helping our listeners be better at work tomorrow. What do you think is the smallest possible change our listeners could do that would have an impact and help them have that better day at work tomorrow?
1: When it comes to their own mental health, one of the things that you can start right away is just feeling good because you're doing good. When we start to mentally check out of work and it's Friday at 2.39 PM, use that time at 2.39 PM, set a little calendar reminder and compliment someone and not just positive gossip, but actually start to spend your week more focused on what you have versus what you don't have, which is the science of gratitude. And, And I'm telling you, this is not gonna solve for your, you know, root causes of burnout workload or any of those things. But when we do nice things for people, there is a selfishness to it. We do get these byproducts of actually feeling better. And instead of complimenting someone in like an okay way, which gives you around three times the amount of happiness than if you did nothing. So that's good. That's like, hey, nice hair, great shoes, good work, good job. Instead, we should be doing the compliment that actually gives us seven and a half times the length of the impact on our happiness and 13 times the length of impact on the receiver is by actively listening to what someone really cares about in the week. What lights them up? What gets them excited? What is something really cool that they shared with you or did? Or, you know, maybe they did something in a meeting that you were really interested in. Spend just like a couple minutes writing an email or sending on social collaboration or getting on the good old fashioned phone and saying, Hey, like, I just want to let you know that this thing that you were sharing with me was really interesting. And I thought that was really cool. And, you know, I just love how passionate you are about your cooking, or I think it's really awesome how much you care about your team, you're a really good leader, and take time to really start watching what people care about and what lights them up, because you're building empathy you're building your active listening skills. Your brain is actually spending less time focusing on what sucks around you and focusing more on what's good. You're also seeing people for who they are and who uh, what authentically matters to them. And you do that in every Friday at 239 PM, you you sort of set this reminder for yourself. Again, it's at the exact same time. So you get these healthy, you know, chemistry boosts because it's the exact same time. You send that out. And then just watch how that translates across peers and people in your life. Slowly we'll create this network effect of just feeling better about, you know, our work and the people that we're working with.
0: I love that. I am going to join your 2.39pm Friday club. I'm going to add that to my tasks to do. I'm super excited for that. I think that's a great idea. Now we end every podcast with the same question. Can you recall the best advice you received that you feel made you better at work?
1: One of the things that I got advice on from a really amazing mentor who is a female in a new role. But she said one of the things she's learned along the way and why she's gotten to this place is she's understood where she needs to let go, places she needs to let go. Even if you're passionate and you love the work, you really have to focus on what your goals are and what you want to achieve and also what matters. And I started to come up with this schematic around kind of deathbed regrets, which sounds pretty morbid. But I started to think like, if I don't send out this email at 11 o'clock at night, will that be my deathbed regret? Or will it be like that I got a proper night's sleep and I was a healthier you know, mother to my children? You know, if I do this other project, will that mean I'm now working 60 hours and I can't have dinner with my family at night? Like, what are my main goals in life? And then how do I skew my work to make sure that I make choices that are kind of like thinking I can have anything, but not everything. So there will be some sacrifice on the decisions I make on what I want to really do. And it sounds exciting, but what am I best at? What do I always nail it at? What gives me mastery and makes me feel good? And what also gives me a very balanced life so that I can do the other things that I love? I have that privilege because I'm older. You know, I've more experience in my career. I have more tenure. I I run my own ship. So it's easy for me to say, but I think that if we can, you know, encourage people to just kind of think like, is this who's telling me to do this? Is this necessary? Does it mean it's going to impact the things when I am, you know, sitting there on that last few days in my hospital bed thinking, what do I regret? And if it isn't this thing, then you know, maybe we put that to bed and get some rest and wake up a little bit more refreshed in the morning.
0: I am so using that because I can be bad at that. I agree with you. I should be going, get some proper sleep instead of sending this stupid ass email. So I can tell already I'm I'm using it tonight. (laughs) Jennifer, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. I've loved every minute of it. Now, for more information on Jennifer, you can go to jennifer-moss.com. There you can find details on her amazing informative book and her fantastic workshops and seminars on workplace well-being, happiness and burnout. Now, plus, Jennifer, I think you have some new LinkedIn learning coming soon, too, right?
1: Yeah, I just finished filming yesterday. The first course that i've ever done with them launches on uh, in september so yeah it's been so amazing to kind of create these scripts and i think in the end there's around 19 films there are these little tiny bite-sized learning modules that people can take to uh to learn a little bit more specifically for managers on how to prevent burnout in their teams
0: i cannot wait for those there you have it guys lots more you can learn about Jennifer. Her book is amazing. Get it. Get. I would get the hard copy because it's really handy to have on your desk as you flick through when you have those burnout moments. And Jennifer, enjoy your long weekend. Thank you so much for joining us on Better at Work.
1: Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Really enjoyed this.
0: Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Annette, welcome to another episode of Let's Take This Offline. How are you this week?
2: I am good, Kahal. I'm good. Really happy to be here and keen to talk about Jennifer Moss. I think how the insights are for organizations and leaders and all of us to take into our organizations are that need for burnout prevention strategy and that recognition based on the understanding of the drivers of burnout, that it's not as simple as a gym membership or a box of chocolates when there's been a a tough day. It's, It's it's a complex set of support mechanisms to put in place to help people avoid burnout manage themselves through it but also the support to get through a burnout event because those those causes you can't avoid those that poor relationships or that perceived lack of control that's going to happen it's about having the conversations about emotions being checked in and having all the the frameworks safety nets in place to help people, avoid, but also recover from burnout.
0: One of my takeaways was really understanding that burnout, the triggers for burnout are not just workload, they are lack of control, Lack of reward and recognition, poor relationships, lack of fairness and values mismatch. I think that's a really big takeaway for me from it. And I think in relation to what you were saying there, organizations should look at those six triggers and go, well, how does our anti-burnout strategy deal with that? Right. Are we looking at the workload of our staff fairly? our rewards and recognition program, is it fair to everyone? Are some parts of the organization not being paid fairly? Are women being paid the same as men? Because we now know from the research that can have a huge impact on people. Is there fairness in your hiring process, in your promotion process? Get to the Goldilocks zone. Absolutely. And certainly the perceived lack of control, asking people those kind of questions. You know, these triggers are great questions to be asking people as well in your employee surveys, etc. So I took a lot from Jennifer. I thought she was excellent. And I think that there's a lot there that people can take away. And honestly, for anyone that has not read the book, it's called The Burnout Epidemic. Jennifer Maas, it's a fantastic book. It's one of my favourites of 2022, without a doubt.
2: There's a lot more to unpack there, Kahal, in terms of the research and that awareness that there are obstacles for a lot of people to reaching happiness and fulfilment and you know that, that balancing out of just say no and be positive and smile. That's so much more complex than that when you take into account inequality, background, and the other challenges that a lot of us face.
0: Absolutely. And we'll share more on that. For anyone that's new to the podcast, we do have a newsletter that goes out where we share some of the key messages from our different interviews. If you're interested, do go to our website and you'll be able to sign up for our newsletter and get some more on that because I think we're going to go a little bit deeper on Jennifer. So thank you for that, Annette. Okay, now it's time for our question. And so this particular episode, Annette, I've actually got a email this time and it's from Louise. Now, this is an interesting one. Louise is a manager and one of her team has had a very close relative die. Louise is struggling with this because the person has come back to work. The lady that's come back to work is not being as productive as normal. Louise understands why. Obviously, it's a very tough thing to go through. Louise is just saying, I just love some advice. Like, what can I do to help my staff member who's come back to work? I'm trying to do my best, but I feel like I'm walking on eggshells and I'm a little anxious. So that's our question, Annette. That's quite a tough one for Louise. I have been there before, as I'm sure you have with grief happening for members of your team. But what are your thoughts on on that question from Louise? And, And then I'll give some of mine.
2: I've got two streams of advice for Louise. And the first one is around a really good understanding of the physiology of grief. So when we experience grief, through loss, our serotonin levels plummet. And on average for people, it takes about twelve months before you start to feel yourself again and rebuilding through that year. And through the year, those waves of grief should slow those size of the waves should decrease. And the frequency of that overwhelming sadness from grief, there should, you know, be more space between them, along with grief counselling, and I recommend that for everyone, no matter how stoic you are. And if you're not feeling better in 12 months, then with medical help, antidepressants might be needed too kick into the serotonin level recovery. So there's a lot in there. And I think if Louise can work to understand the physiology of grief, she'll then be able to understand and therefore better support her team members. So getting into that detail. And there's also two books that I would recommend for Louise. So if Louise hasn't had her own experience of grief or trauma the two books that I'd recommend and I've found really hugely helpful are the classic from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death and dying and the stages of grief so that, you know, the denial and, and anger, really understanding those stages. And then Kahal, my other one is, more, is from literature and you, is from Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking, and that's the book that Joan Didion wrote the year following the death of her husband, and as you know, Kahal, I'm a diehard Joan Diddy and fangirl. I went to her childhood home when I was in Sacramento, but understanding grief through another's experience could really help. Louise in terms of being there for her team member and so her support and understanding can come from a place of being informed and I think unless you've been through a loss and a trauma it is hard really hard to understand but there are great books that can really help you to build that knowledge and I know that Louise will bring her empathy but it'll make sure and help that empathy being informed with the with the facts the physiology the cycle and others experience
0: that's really good advice in it you always have to think of the person for louise it's tough as well she needs to look after herself because you know my advice would be to her to also talk to her hr team if she has one just to see is there support available is there has louise been able to give this employee as much time as possible to take out, is there a free counseling service available through the company? So I I would start there probably just to kind of go, okay, you know, explore with her HR team. I would say from my own experience, my dad died. I'd literally moved to New York when I was working at, a, at an investment bank. And six days later, he died. The company was very supportive. You know, I would say that my direct manager probably didn't know me that well. So it was kind of difficult probably for her because, you know, I just started in the team. But I would say that some of the things that probably were hard was when, you know, you come back into the office and people have their own lives, right? So suddenly when when I came back to the office, you know, people obviously know something's happened, but then a few days pass and it's kind of back to normal. But you're not back to normal. As you said, Annette, it can take a year. certainly took me a while. I would say the things that didn't happen for me, which I think they should have suggested at the time was, you know, maybe take some time out because I came back very quickly. And then I actually requested the time out myself so I could go back home and things like that. That was anxious time for me to be asking that. I probably would have liked them to have suggested that. But you know, particularly if you don't know your boss that well, it's probably harder. But in the broader company, they knew me very well and they actually were very good. Everyone was excellent. But oftentimes your direct manager has the most impact on you in this particular moment. So even if everyone in the company at the senior levels is saying, take time, do this, you know, I think for Louise, the reason I share that is don't underestimate that, you know, that person, she probably is looking to you to guide in terms of time she might be able to take out, et cetera. She's not thinking about the company's policy. She's looking to you. So that's not to put pressure on Louise, but that's why I say, Louise, go to the HR, see as much as possible. What can you offer this lady? And then I would just say, you know, checking in regularly with her, as Jennifer said, you know, sometimes checking in with someone on what were the highs and lows of the week, you know, for that particular person, they'll probably have more lows. How can you help them in that period? Don't expect them to be as productive. You know, I was always very productive, but that year after my father died, I wasn't as productive. For Louise, it's thinking about how can you give that person a little bit of a break for a little while, right? Now, some people may not want the break, but it's at least offering it and saying, look, would you like to go on a lesser profile project for a period? There are practical things, I think, Annette, that Louise can do. But again, it comes back to just having a conversation. I would say to Louise, have a conversation with the lady in question, check in on how she's feeling. Don't be too hard on yourself, Louise. It's tough if you haven't been through it yourself. Have a two-way conversation. Check in. Ask them, do they need some time out? Check with your HR. And sometimes look as a manager, you know, you don't need to check everything with HR. If you're noticing that the person is struggling, maybe say, look, you know what? You want to take Friday next week off? Do something. You can make those decisions. So, and it's slightly different to your approach. I love your approach as well. I I didn't even think of that reading about the grief side of things. I suppose, you know, for me, I've been through it and I I totally agree with what you're saying. It does take a year. Someone said to me, when someone dies, don't make any changes in your life for one year and one day, because over that year, you're going to go through so much emotion and etc. But I feel for Louise because it's a tough one. But I also feel for that poor person who's obviously lost someone very close to them.
2: That's such heartfelt advice, Kahal. And I think when you're grieving or you've experienced trauma, in terms of what you need, books, counselling, leave, and knowing that that's okay, if someone can help you step through that, that gets you halfway there, having someone who knows and understands the physiology of grief and loss and trauma. You can't see the wood for the trees when you're in it. You know you're not yourself.
0: And the person mightn't be sleeping very well. And there's just so much. I think having conversations, checking in, those types of things, getting some support for yourself as well, because as the manager, what Louise wrote on there that she felt like she was walking on eggshells. I can understand that because actually when I had my own grief in times, you don't expect people to be walking on eggshells, but you can imagine they would be walking on eggshells because they're like, oh God, if this happened to me, I'd be so down and out. For Louise, there's some different pieces of advice there from Annette and I. Hopefully that helps you. Um, we're definitely here to help. And I do say this genuinely, if people do have questions that they don't want to put on here, you can just drop us a a note on LinkedIn or whatever. Annette and I, you know, we are always happy to help, aren't we? Annette, that's kind of why we do this podcast. We actually love helping people. You know, if we if we take Jennifer's mantra, being an empathetic leader is probably one of the key things, particularly in these kind of scenario. So Louise, we wish you all the best with that. We hope that was some use to you and feel free to follow up with us offline again if you want um, some further help. I often say this Annette and I are not trained counselors psychologists we've just been around and seen this happen and seen lots of cases where people are dealing with different things in their life that you know comes into work and sometimes you just have to look at the situation and go how how can we help this person through this difficult time in their life but on that hopefully you have a a, a good week ahead Louise and please as I said do look after yourself as well That's it for this particular episode of Better at Work. We hope you enjoyed it. If you do have questions for us, please do not hesitate to drop us an email, an Instagram message, a LinkedIn post, whatever you want to do. Do we take smoke signals, Annette? I can't remember.
2: We do, Kahal. We, we do. Okay, you take We've smoke signals okay. as well. Yeah.
0: Okay, yeah. you've got that covered. So if you do want to contact us, do you can actually send us a message on our website. Annette, thank you so much for another great episode and enjoy your week ahead.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Kahal. So interesting. And I'm learning so much from the interviews and debriefing on those with you. And I also feel based on the feedback that with the listeners' questions, we're helping, but it's helping others as well. That really lights
0: me up. Me too. Me too. I, I'm I yesterday I got multiple messages from people saying they're loving the show in it. You know, we're kind of halfway through the series now, so it's fantastic. We'll talk again soon.
2: Talk soon. Thanks everyone. Bye bye, kahal. Talk to you soon. Bye Ned. Bye everyone. See
0: you soon. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.